2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. I uh, want to take some time to read these verses here this evening as we get back in. It's been a, quite a while since we've been here. But let's begin reading there at verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, uh, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, or pretend to be a mourner. And put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king, and speak of, on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth, and when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, and did obedience, and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they too strove together in the field, and there was none to part them. But the one smote the other, and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thine handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother, whom uh, he slew, and we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not uh, leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. And then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then said the woman, or then the woman said, let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord, the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, and that the king doth not fetch home again his banished, speaking of his son Absalom. For we uh, must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now therefore I am come to speak to this thing unto my Lord, the king. It is because the people have made me afraid, and thy handmaid said, I will now, now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me, and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comfortable, for as an angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that, thou, uh, that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, Is not the handmaid of Joab uh, with thee, or is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, As thy soul liveth, my lord the king, not, 
none can be, to uh, turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my lord the king has spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, and he put all the words in the mouth of thine handmaid. I'll stop there for just now, and, and we want to look a little bit more in some other verses as we go on. But I've entitled this message here tonight, Repentance and Forgiveness Equals Restoration. Without repentance, without uh, uh, forgiveness, there's not going to be any restoration. Uh, Ken Sandy writes in the, his book, The Peacemaker, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict. He writes there how loving actions can communicate forgiveness and reconciliation. And listen to this. He says, loving actions can do much more than change your feelings. They can also communicate in unmistakable terms the reality of your forgiveness and your commitment to reconciliation. Thomas Edison apparently understood this principle. When he and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb, it took hundreds of hours to manufacture a single bulb. One day, after finishing a bulb, he handed it to a young errand boy and asked him to take it upstairs to the testing room. As the boy turned and started up the stairs, he stumbled and fell, and the bulb shattered on the steps. Instead of rebuking the boy, Edison uh, reassured him and then turned to his staff and told them to start working on another bulb. When it was completed, several days later, Edison demonstrated the reality of his forgiveness in the most powerful way possible. He walked over to the same boy, handed him the bulb, and said, please take this up to the testing room. Now imagine how that boy must have felt. He knew that he didn't deserve to be trusted with this responsibility again, yet here it was, being offered to him as though nothing had ever happened. Nothing could have restored this boy to the team more clearly, more quickly, or more fully. How much more should those of us who have experienced reconciliation with God be quick to demonstrate our forgiveness with concrete actions. All right. Um, you want to check back there, see if everything is all right, uh, Brother Frank, if you would? No, he's, he's, he's out there. He's in, I just want to make sure everything is okay. All right. We've, we've got the recorded starting, started already. So just... Watch that there, Dayton. All right. But the king, so that's a great story here, an illustration of Thomas Edison who spent hours uh, creating that bulb. The boy drops it, but yet he still reassured him and days later gives him the same responsibility. That was a demonstration of forgiveness, a demonstration that, um, uh, of restoration. And so King David, had he experienced reconciliation with God? Of course he had. He didn't deserve it. King David had messed up, and yet uh, he received this reconciliation. But with his son Absalom, he never did or never was able to achieve true reconciliation. Three years now have passed since Absalom had murdered his half-brother Amnon. And uh, you remember Amnon who raped Tamar, his sister, and he fled in exile to Geshur. Joab, David's nephew and his chief military general, wanted to facilitate reconciliation between King David and his son Absalom. 
Now, the question is, you know, as we read about David reconciling with Absalom here in this passage, but as we'll see, it wasn't real. Okay, when we stopped here after this um, woman who pretended to be a mourner uh, gave him the story, and then David says to Joab, go fetch him. Go fetch Absalom, bring him back. He brought him back, but he still did not uh, bring him into the home. Two years passed, and we'll, and, I'm, uh, and we'll see that in just a moment. But it was a false reconciliation that took place. There wasn't any repentance. There wasn't any forgiveness. And so David was king, and let's remind ourselves about this. David was the anointed king. David accomplished great things for God. He was even the foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And, but David demonstrated dramatically uh, by, because of his sin, his committing uh, adultery, committing murder, he demonstrated that he needed God's forgiveness. There's not a man, woman, or child on this earth that, that does not need God's forgiveness. He needed God's enabling power to help him to gain victory over his failings. And if David needed it, Obviously, we all need it. David's sin also created a lot of, ha uh, of havoc in his family. God was chastening David. Remember, God, through Nathan, told him what would happen. Uh, he said, the sword shall never depart from thine house. He also said, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And it's continuing to take place. David was manipulated by Joab here. And he was manipulated into reconciling with Absalom, but it was not real. The results of this false reconciliation also resulted in further havoc in the family. But number one, I want you to see some things. How Number one, it was orchestrated. The orchestrated reconciliation. Uh, the in the first it's not something that we can just produce in and of ourselves. As I have already said, there must be repentance. There must be forgiveness. So after Absalom murdered Amnon, he spends three years in exile. Then verse 1 says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, uh, per perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. So Joab decides to facilitate this reconciliation. Now we're not told of his reasons for doing so, uh, but it's possible that he wanted genuine reconciliation between David and his son. But most likely, he saw the decline in David's kingdom. Remember, Joab's been in the middle of all this. Joab knew firsthand about this adultery. He knew about the murder. And, and so Ab he, he, he saw Absalom, and, and, and he thought, you know, Absalom is probably our best hope uh, for Israel. He wanted to be sure that the kingdom of Israel was preserved. And so we see Joab, and I believe there's a little bit of deceit here, as he's trying to, maybe he means well for the kingdom, but he's working against God's anointed. And so whatever the reason, Joab sent to Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, for this wise woman. And he instructed her to pretend to be a mourner, and to go to the king, speak certain words to him there in verses 2 and 3. And so she comes, she pays homage to him, she 
bows before him. She pretends to be a widow whose son was uh, killed by her other son by, and, and says it was an accident, pretty much is what is being said here, and that the entire extended family was out to get him. Her now, her only son. And they demanded that she deliver him into their hands. And she says to David, if, that's, if that was to happen, then there'd be no, um, since my husband is dead, there's no one to carry on the name. My family name or his family name would be wiped out. Then verses 4 down through verse 7, we can see that's what happened there. And she implied that the king should spare her son's life. And of course, this is all, this is not true. This is just a story. But David told her to go home that he would spare his life there in verse 8. Then the woman asked the king to promise. That wasn't enough, David. You need to promise by an oath that uh, her son would be spared. Telling this, the king that if sparing her son was wrong, then she and her family would bear the, the guilt of that. Now, David, so he, he, in verse 11, he does. He swears. Um, take care of her son, spare her son. And so after this oath, then this woman asked him uh, why he wasn't willing to save his own son. If he was willing to save this boy, why wasn't he willing to save his own, to spare his own son Absalom? And uh, so she, that's verse 13. Uh, then she talks about the life, how, how uncertain that once it's lost, it cannot be restored, water being poured out on the ground. You can't collect it and put it back in the vessel. And so that's life. Once it's gone, it's gone. We can't uh, uh, bring it back. And so he shouldn't, what he's, she's saying to him, he shouldn't remain unreconciled, but should follow God's example. Now, that's a good point. He should follow God's example. He should try to reconcile with his son. I agree. But that, the way this all happened was not done in the right way. And you'll see, I'll kind of clarify that in a moment. But in verse 14, um, she argued here that God himself has devised a plan, well, a plan of mercy, whereby the banished one will remain, um, will not remain an outcast as David was not an outcast. David was not banished. And so God exercised that plan with David. So she's asking the same for Absalom. And so the, the woman expressed her confidence that the king would do what was right and concerning the judgment of her son, in verses 15 and 17. But um, at this point now, David says something's going on here. David caught on. He realized that this wasn't the woman that came with this story, but it was Moab behind all of this. And so she confesses there in verses 18 through 20 that indeed it was Joab that put her, up, put her up to this. Now, the story does remind us of another story that was told to David. Remember, as he came to him, told him the story about the sheep and, and so forth. But let me, there, there is a difference, though. Um, Nathan's story was designed to get David to submit to God's will, God's word, whereas this woman's story was designed to get David to act contrary to, to, to God's word. And that's the real difference here. Verse 2, the woman from Tekoa, she's described, catch that, as a wise woman. 
But honestly, I don't see any wisdom here in chapter 14 at all. Most, almost all, every character in chapter 14, we don't see wisdom. David no longer acts. David now is acted upon. And in, in, in this chapter here, David reacts rather than leads, rather than rules. And he does not reign, but he consents. Um, he appears decisive, but uh, he caves in. And uh, if we have time to um, see these other verses, you'll see that. But is that wisdom? No. David's not relying upon God, and Joab is trying to deceive David and manipulate the situation. And uh, so this, this should remind us it's possible, possible to have all the signs of wisdom, to have all the plans and all the strat strategies and all uh, great accomplishments in life, and yet be utterly devoid of any wisdom. And so that's uh, where we are here, the um, orchestrated reconciliation. This was not true reconciliation. It was all orchestrated by Joab, but there was no repentance. There was no forgiveness. And then secondly, we see the appearance of, appearance of reconciliation. In verses 21 down through verse 27, and the king said unto Joab, Now I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, and that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel, there was none to be more or much praised as Absalom for his, do you see that next word? For his beauty. That's what he was praised for. Uh, from the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he pulled his head, for it was uh, at every year's end that he pulled it uh, because the hair was heavy on him. Therefore, he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of a fair countenance. And so here, as it says again in verse 21, because of the woman's request, David says unto Joab to go get Absalom. And Joab pays homage to David and, and blesses him. And then he went to Jeshur. He brings uh, Absalom back to Jerusalem. But when Joab and Absalom returned to Jerusalem, do you notice the Bible said there in verse 24, David said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. Boy, there's no forgiveness there, is there? I don't want to see. Now, now remember, what did this boy do? Well, he killed um, Ab Amnon raped uh, Absalom's sister. It was a mess, uh, just a, a total mess, totally dysfunctional. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house, never did come into the king's presence during that time. That carried on, the Bible says, it was full two years. A full two years passes. And when we then read a description of Absalom's 
appearance, his handsome appearance. I mean, Absalom became a very proud, arrogant, and uh, full of himself, and he saw himself as a very good-looking man, handsome man. His full head of hair. Talks about his children there as well. Matthew Henry, I thought this was interesting. He's, he notes about Absalom. He says, all that is here said of him is, number one, that he was a very handsome man. Number two, that he had a very fine head of hair. Number three, that his family began to be built up. Nothing is said about his wisdom or his piety. There's no spiritual value here in the life of Absalom at all. So unwittingly, David puts Absalom in contact with the very people who are going to turn against him. People who they admired and adored Absalom and who would eventually side with him and rebel against David. So as Absalom returned to Jerusalem, he may have thought this, you know, God is, is acting in a providential way toward me. God is working things out in my favor. And he may not have, uh, you know, he may have changed his mind after he had to wait two years here. But then after two years, he was granted an audience with the king. And again, maybe he thought this is, uh, uh, seemed to be some sort of reconciliation. And um, we're not even real sure if Absalom even believed in God's providential hand. We're not sure because it says nothing of his spiritual life at all. But from his perspective, it did appear that at least providence was on his side, was smiling on him. However, we always need to be careful that, uh, to, uh, uh, appeal, that we appeal to divine providence uh, to justify certain actions or circumstances. Oh, well, God has answered my prayer that he has allowed the, the rain to stop today. Therefore, I this is what God wants me to do. And, you know, there have been sinful people who have tried to use uh, God in justifying their actions. Adolf Hitler, I don't need to explain who that was. We all know who Adolf Hitler was. He survived an assassination attempt on his life during, or there at the wolf's lair, uh, which did puncture his eardrum and temporarily paralyzed one of his arms. And so immediately after that, Hitler was supposed to be, meet Mussolini. And so he meets uh, Mussolini and, and at the train, and he uh, took him back to Wolf's lair to let him see the damage of what happened. And um, uh, Mussolini says, frankly, Deuce, uh, uh, or excuse me, he says to him, this was a marvelous a thing that has happened here, that he was still alive. And Hitler confessed, I, uh, I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. When, he had, when Mussolini admitted that he had had a, a, an amazing escape, a marvelous escape, here's what Hitler said. Marvelous? It's more than that. It's God's intervention. Look at this room, at my uniform. When I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and bring my great enterprise to completion. So here's Hitler, one of the most evil leaders in our, our history, 
and who killed millions of people. And yet he's saying that God was leading him. God protected him. So we need to be careful that we uh, don't appeal to divine providence just to try to justify our actions. So here's the, the appearance of reconciliation. was. They bring Absalom back, he, and, and, but yet there isn't any reconciliation. Joab's orchestrating all of this, and you can't do that. I, you know, I, as much as I would like to, I would like to orchestrate reconciliation. We've all known individuals that have grown apart, haven't we? That have gotten angry. And a lot of times it's always dumb things, little things. And it'd be nice just to go in and, and we can uh, work this out, but it doesn't work that way. There needs to be a forgiveness on one part and a repentance, or excuse me, repentance really needs to take place before there can be real forgiveness. And uh, uh, without that, and there cannot be reconciliation without it. Uh, how many of us, wouldn't it be great if we, when we brought a lost person to church, that all we had to do was drag them down the aisle, get them to touch the altar, and poof, they're saved. Man, we'd be dragging people down here all the time. Who cares if we never saw them again? They're saved. They're going to heaven. But it doesn't work that way. We can't orchestrate salvation, but we can lead someone that direction. We can help in restoration, but it's going to take God working in the heart. Let me get to my last point here. Failure of reconciliation. You know, it's sad, but there are some who call themselves believers, and no question they are, but they are not reconciled with a, a brother or sister in the Lord. They're at odds with them. They won't speak to them. And that ought not be. But failure is seen here. Look down at verse 28 with me. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have seen, or sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So Joab wasn't coming. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant uh, set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from uh, Geshur? It hath been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, <clears throat> he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Well, there in verse 28, we see this. Um, he saw not the king's face for two full years. We see the story here. He sends his servants after trying to get Joab's attention. I, wanted, I want an audience with the king. Joab wouldn't listen to him, so he burns his field. That's the one way to catch someone's attention, right? Uh, got him over there real quick. And so Joab told David that Absalom wanted to see him there. And, of course, verse 33 we see the response of the king. This was not forgiveness. This was not real. This was a mechanical kiss here. 
This, there was no heart in it. Um, there, there was no uh, forgiveness. There was certainly no true reconciliation between David and Absalom, and that would be made clear later on. But this event in David and Absalom's life shows us that we should always, always seek true reconciliation. It's not enough just to, well, I'll put on a good face on Sundays and I'll act like everything's okay, but in my heart, boy, I am, you know, really resent that person. I'm angry at that person. There's no, there's no forgiveness. reconciliation involves repentance and forgiveness. Absalom wanted forgiveness, but he didn't want to repent. He wanted all the benefits of being restored, but he did not want to repent. And he would not accept whatever punishment was due him. He never even admitted he did what was wrong. He was just, in his eyes, doing what he did. So he simply wanted the benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of reconciliation, without ever actually repenting of a sin. Now, if you are reconciled to someone... Um, or I sh let me rephrase it, not reconciled, but if you are unreconciled with someone, someone has wronged you, you, whatever thing has happened, you know, sometimes you can't even remember what it was, right? So many years have passed and you don't even know what it was. I've shared before how I've had two uncles who, who uh, were never, never did get uh, forgive one another, were angry at one another for years and battled until they died, they never did. And it was over a, they well, what I heard, and I couldn't hardly tell me, but it was something to do with a coon dog and a rifle. They traded, and and it's crazy. Um, and then their their own sons' uh, land. There was some, you know, one one this part of the land, one wanted it, and and boy, it just continues on. The next generation, not speaking to one another, not uh, willing to to uh, be reconciled, but. If there is something for which you need to repent, then um, that's what you need to find out. Is there anything of which I need to repent of? If so, then repent of your sin and seek that other person's forgiveness. That's the only way you're going to see restoration or, or reconciliation. S number two, sometimes you may be unreconciled to a person because of the sin uh, of that other person. So before they even act, we must to forgive that person. However, unless that person repents of their sin, you're not going to be able to achieve reconciliation. But that should not stop you from forgiving them. Pastor, you don't know what they did. That's maybe true. But I'm just saying, biblically, if you and I can't learn to forgive, then we're going to be eaten alive with that, um, that unforgiving uh, spirit and become bitter and angry so but if they do if we forgive and they still do not repent then um, you can't be reconciled uh, mark I, i'm not saying that it's going to be every individual that you're going to definitely see reconciliation sometimes it just won't happen reconciliation involves forgiveness and repentance finally we should be aware that reconciliation is possible because you and I have experienced reconciliation with God. All sin is first against God, so that's why 
we must always repent of our sin in order for God to forgive us. Um, if we repent, He is willing to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Also, so only then is reconciliation with God possible if we repent. So let me ask tonight, can you say that you're reconciled to God? Of course, uh, if you've been saved, yes, praise the Lord. But maybe there's still some sin that you haven't confessed, that you haven't repented of. I urge you to do that. And then are you reconciled to others? Is there anyone walking on this green earth that you are not reconciled with, that you have uh, an argument with, you've not spoken to them, however far it's gone, I would say, let's do this. Let's swallow our pride. Let's acknowledge that this is a problem. Forgive if forgiveness is needed, or in maybe we need to repent. Let's repent and seek reconciliation. Ask that person to forgive. So that person should uh, do so in, 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 in the best scenario of that situation would be when those the two are reconciled and can walk together in unity all right are there any comments i know we kind of run through the life of david here about him about him uh, um, not reconciling with absalom but uh, are there any comments or questions you have about that story